Hebrews chapter 8. Now, I normally, I hate to admit it, sometimes as a preacher, you kind of like to build on what you're talking about, and then you get to the apex of what you want to say, and it's like, ta-da, there it is. But as I listen to that hymn, that last verse, excuse me, that last chorus, is basically the summary of, a hymn is basically the summary of what needs to be said. Uh, One with himself, I cannot die. My sinful soul is counted free. For God the just, he's satisfied to look on him who pardoned me. That is our great high priest. Okay, that is the epitome of the new covenant that we're going to look at this morning and this evening. That is the apex uh, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, again, I want to encourage you as we started chapter 7, going into chapter 8, we've got chapter 9 and chapter 10, I just... Thank you, Captain Obvious. You know, that's 7, 8, 9, 10. But what I want to remind you is that these few chapters are, they are, it's like a vitamin. A vitamin has all the nutrients that you need. You know, you, it's all packed into one. And you want every bit of it that you can get. Well, in chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10, we are getting so much of who Christ is. It, but I can't give it to you in vitamin form. In a little, it's something. It's something that we have to work together. Okay, you've got to work with me as we walk through this, and you've got to work with me throughout the week. And go in and go read chapter nine next week, as we roll into the Lord's uh, the Lord's day next week. And I highly suggest reading seven, eight, nine, and ten together, once a week or twice a week. Uh, because it is a running commentary on the work of Jesus Christ as the high priest. Um, and so I want you to go home, to work hard, to put the effort in, to be in prayer, asking the Lord to help you to see and seek Christ in these chapters. Do it as a family. Do it at the table when you eat breakfast or, or dinner. So as we look at chapter 8 this morning, I just want to kind of, well, end tonight. Uh, we th- we will only probably get through six verses this morning. And the Lord gave me a cutoff point, thankfully. And then we'll pick up the rest this evening. But basically the way we'll work through this chapter is we're going to start like we did last week with a little bit of Bible study. And that's part of the work that we got to put in here. And we'll do this together with a few things to see. And then we're going to walk through the passage similarly, similarly to what we did last week. Uh, but like I said, we probably we won't get through all of it. And then at the end of that, we're going to draw out some conclusions. Some things that you can go home and really, really meditate on, that you can really chew on. Um, before we do that, let me say a quick prayer, and then I want to remind you of what I introduced you to last week in biblical theology. So, first a quick prayer. Father, may you open the eyes of your servants 
that we might see your word, that we might live to keep it. And as we've talked about this morning in Sunday school, that we might live for your glory. God, in, uh, through faith and obedience to, the, to your word and your commandments, to the knowledge and truth of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. For his sake we pray. Amen. So I introduced us last week to this phrase, biblical theology. Theology is just, it's the study of God. And so when, the, when you see people say biblical theology, it's the study of God through the whole of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. And in biblical theology, you find themes. And do you remember the theme from last week? High priest, or priest, or priesthood. Okay, and so we talked about Adam. Could We could technically claim Adam as the first priest, because a priest is someone from whom chosen among men to serve or to relate to God on our behalf. Uh, and so when you start studying the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation about priesthood, these other themes start to pop up that there you can't you can't help but to see them. And these are the themes that we're going to start talking about in chapters 8 and 9 and into 10. And the first one being a temple or tabernacle. Another one being sacrifice. And another one being covenant. So temple, sacrifice, and covenant. These are the, te the themes that tend to come out when we look at the theme of priest or priesthood. Now, when we think back to Adam as our first priest, let's work that out. Let's think, okay, where's the temple? Where's the sacrifice? Where's the covenant? So, like I said, we're going to start our Bible studies. Let's go to Genesis. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1. Look at verse. Uh, before I, before I do that, where is Adam? What's what's the uh, what's the setting of Genesis one? Where where are we at? We're in the Garden of Eden, right? Who's there? Adam, okay. Eve, who else? God. So we see Adam, our potential first priest, and then we see. The first temple in Scripture, Eden. Because a temple in Scripture is for what purpose? Or the tabernacle. Same thing, just different way it's built. It's for the presence of God among men, among his creation. So we've got Eden, which is God's first temple. We've got Adam. We also have a covenant Okay, we have a covenant. And before we can talk about covenant, we have to know what that even means. So here's how we're going to simply define covenant for us this morning. Covenant, the word just simply means 
to bind. To bind, to put together. Okay, so to bind, you have what? Multiple things that you bring together. Well, that binding in Scripture is between God and man. And so that binding between God and man is always based on an agreement between the two parties. And a covenant in general is based on a mutual agreement between the two parties. And the mutual agreement is founded on a promise that each makes to the other. So as we think about God making covenant with man, beginning with Adam, he's defining his relationship with that person or persons. Okay? God's covenant with man defines his relationship with them, and that's why covenant is relational. Now, don't fall asleep on me here. This is, this is super, super important to understanding beyond what God is doing in mankind. Okay? Look at verse 26. Chapter 1, verse 26. God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Okay. Everything belongs to who? God. Well, God's defining the relationship right now between God and man. I'm giving you my stuff. This is mine. I'm giving it to you. 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. 28. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the airs and the heavens and over everything that moves on earth. So not only does God say in this covenant relationship... I'm giving you what is mine, but this is how you ought to handle it. How you ought to take care of it. So God is laying down the agreement between Adam and himself. Now, flip over to chapter 2, verse 15. God gets a little bit more specific with how he's going to form this relationship with Adam, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now you think, well, that might kind of be a one-sided covenant. Well, it's not really. Because God says... Your job is to obey. My job is to keep you alive. You obey and you'll live. You obey and you'll be blessed. We know the outcome of chapter 3, don't we? Adam broke the covenant. Adam did not do as he had said he would do. Look at verse 
16. So, God being God has a right to do what he pleases and he sort of adjusts his relationship, his covenant with Adam and Eve. Now, what ought he to do with them? He ought to end them right then and there. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband's, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till, you're, till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made Adam for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Now... Adam still had to do what God said. Have dominion over creation. Subdue it. Tend it. Work it. But because of the curse of sin, life just got a lot more difficult. But, so we've, we, see the, we see in Genesis, we see a priest, we see a temple, we see a covenant. But verse 21 shows us the first sacrifice. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So where do we get garments of skins? From animals. A sacrifice. God clothed Adam and Eve, gave them life instead of ending it. Let them live because he shed blood for them. So that's just Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And from there, these themes explode throughout Scripture. Absolutely explode. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is built upon those very same themes. Okay, the very same themes. Uh, God, well, fast forward, in Genesis 6, makes another covenant with somebody else. Do you all know who it is? Noah. God makes a covenant with Noah because guess what? He's starting over, right? And the covenant is very similar to what he tells Adam. But then he makes another covenant later on in Genesis 12. He becomes, he gets more specific in his relationship with man. God does when he talks to Abraham. The covenant that God set forth in Abraham goes from all mankind down to Abraham and his offspring, right? When you get to Abraham, we're now talking about Abraham and his offspring. And our thoughts, well, okay, well, that's not fair. Uh, but you have to understand, by the time, at this point in history, the world... What we might call the nations as a whole 
have turned from God and worship idols. In Genesis 12, the world is full of pagans. I want you to understand that. It only it didn't take but the son of Adam for the serpent and Satan to encroach. It, of course, it took Adam and Eve. But even after that, Cain was the first son of Satan. And then it spread beyond that, right, to the fact that God had to wipe out the world because of the rampantness of sin. He regretted that he had made man. And so when we get to Genesis 12, he has a world that is worshiping made-up gods. And Abraham's actually one of them. And he pulls Abraham and he makes a covenant with Abraham. He wants to form a relationship with Abraham, so he makes a covenant with that. There's one thing I'm learning. One thing I want us to start thinking about. That covenants equal relationship. This is not a concept that we think about very much, but it is a concept that rules Scripture and and should... overarch how we think about our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. Now there's a lot that goes there and we can't do that. But God's covenant with Abraham says, okay, I'm focusing my attention on this one man, but God never just makes a covenant with just the intention of one man. He's always intending on a people. We, we, we saw it this morning, not the whole world. I'm sorry, it's not the whole world. They asked Jesus in the high priestly prayer, I'm sure we'll talk about next week, well, what about the whole world? And Jesus is like, I'm not praying for the whole world. I'm praying for the ones that you have given me, a people, a particular people. And so God comes to make this relationship with Abraham and his offspring. He says, I will bless you and your offspring. And ultimately, and through blessing you and your physical offspring, that's his first intention is that God wants to make a relationship with Abraham to bless him so that that physical line of Abraham will produce an offspring. And his name is Jesus. And from that offspring, the covenant booms outside of the physical line of Abraham, but to the spiritual offspring of Abraham. Do you know what it takes to be an offspring of Abraham? Faith in Jesus. And so God wanting to create a relationship with Abraham and through that physical relationship is creating a covenant, a relationship with all who believe in Christ. All across the world. This is God's covenant. When you get to Exodus... So I, I went a little too far there. Let's back up. That was in Genesis 12. Then we get to Exodus, and we see probably the most familiar covenant apart from the new covenant, and that's what might be called the Mosaic Covenant, or the covenant that God makes with Moses and Israel at Mount Sinai. Look at Exodus, Exodus 19. I think we read this last week, actually, but we were looking at something else in it. And so we'll see this idea of covenant in Exodus 19, starting in verse 1. Exodus 
So just keep in mind, covenant is how God relates and interacts with his creation. Okay? That's what we see. That's what I'm trying to show you as we started in Genesis and we're making our way to Jesus. It's always covenantal. It's always an agreement built on promises. Okay? So here's where things get a little bit dicey. Exodus 19. On the third uh yeah, on the third new moon, they just came out of Egypt, right? On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they had camped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, Mount Sinai, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob. Okay, we, gotta see, we have to see this. Who's the house of Jacob? It's the physical line of Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And from Jacob, we got what? Twelve sons. Twelve tribes of Israel, right? So, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob. Who? Israel. Say this to Israel. The sons of Abraham. And tell the people of Israel. Verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. What did he do? He redeemed them from bondage and brought him to himself. You remember what he told? they told uh, Pharaoh? Let my people go so that we might go into the wilderness and do what? Worship him. Verse 5. Now, therefore, here's the, here's the beginning of the covenant, the Mosaic covenant. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God told Israel, I will make you my people. Now that, and see, we have to understand, that is God's end of the covenant. That's his promise. And he says, this is what you got to do. This is your end of the bargain. You've got to obey me. That was the Mosaic covenant. Now, you, you then go on to read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and you get this. We can, we can summarize that, that understanding of the covenant and how men ought to uh, obey God in the Ten Commandments. But there are way more things that God has listed in Exodus, and Leviticus, and Numbers. But then if you, if for your own sake, if you want to get a summation of the covenant... That God made with Israel. Go read Deuteronomy. Because Deuteronomy. Is actually. Uh, Moses. Retelling the covenant. To the children of Israel. Because. The people of Israel who came out of Egypt. What did we learn in Hebrews 3? They did not enter God's rest. They were deceived by sin. And he killed them all in the wilderness. But guess what? He had still made a covenant with Israel. So he said, 
I'm going to wipe you all out for your unbelief. I'm going to keep my word and I'm going to bring your kids into the promised land. I'm going to take care of your children and your children's children. But you will not see the fulfillment of my promise. You will not see my covenant because you broke my covenant. Well, if you also finish Deuteronomy and you get to chapter 28, you see, as I said, every covenant is built on promises. God's promise to Israel was this in the new covenant. If you obey, I bless. If you disobey, I curse. That was the promise that the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was built on. You obey Israel, I bless you. You disobey Israel, I curse you. Alright? That's all in Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy is such a helpful book for you to understand um, what God desires, what God is um, demanding. And Jesus quotes Deuteronomy greatly. So, you get through Exodus, you get the Mosaic Covenant. I'm trying to make sure I haven't missed anything here. Meanwhile, in, okay, let, let, let's back up for a second. In the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments, and the making of this covenant, God sets Aaron and his sons as the mediator in that covenant. Okay, we talked about that last week. Aaron and his sons and all who would come after were the ones who would be high priest or priest between man and God, between Israel and uh, God. So from this point, hundreds of years from Exodus, from the Mount Sinai, hundreds of years go on, and Houston, we have a problem. Okay? God made this covenant, gives the law, and there appears to be a problem. And so what we see is that God begins to speak through the prophets of Israel, the likes of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and says, proclaims to Israel, there's a better covenant that is yet to come. There's a better covenant that is yet to come. Now, so as we're making our way back to Hebrews, stop at Luke 22. As we're going back to Hebrews, stop at Luke 22. And Jesus makes mention of this new covenant. Verse 19. He's instituting the Lord's Supper, having his last Passover meal with his disciples before he is going to be arrested, tried, crucified. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 20. And likewise... The cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So the prophets spoke of a better covenant to come. Jesus, as he is approaching the cross, says the new covenant 
is about to take place. And it is coming to you in my blood. Which brings us back to Hebrews 8. So 7 and 8. That God has established a new covenant through Jesus Christ. There is new high priest. That's what we talked about last week. Not like Aaron. Not like anyone under the old covenant. But there is a new priest. A new high priest. The old covenant is going away. And the new priest has come. It's not just working. It's not working. Look at verse uh, 11 in chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 11 of Hebrews. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical high priest, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, here's that new covenant. Here's that new priest. A better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Our new high priest doesn't have the same problem as the old high priest. And he has a new covenant that is better than the old. Now, if you have your Bible, it's made into two sections, right? The first one we call the Old Testament. The second one we call the New Testament. We could just call it the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. That's basically what the division in our Bible is saying. That there was the old, and now there is one new. One that is better. And what starts at the beginning of the New Testament? The coming of the Son of God. Jesus, the new high priest. Now, let's look at our passage. I've just got a few quick notes as we walk through the first six verses. Grab your Bibles, look at it, read it together with me. Let's think through this. Verse 8, or verse 1, chapter 8. Now, the point in what we are saying, the crowning affirmation, the thing that we want you all to know is this. And it's a summation of what we learned last week, and it's a continuation in his argument this week. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of God. The things that he's... Everybody look at me. The things that he's about to say is a summary statement in what we're about to read and learn. Okay? It's a summary statement of what we want to pay attention to. What we'll be uncovering as we go through the next few chapters. This high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places. 
a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Okay? Minister in the holy places and the true tent. So when, when we read about tent in Hebrews 8 and 9, we're talking temple or tabernacle. You understand me? That's where God dwells. In a, first he dwelt in a tent in the wilderness, but then it became a temple. Verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. So we just named the two themes. We just named two themes that we learned in Genesis that we said run throughout Scripture. The temple and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary, as we continue in chapter or verse 3, thus it is necessary for this priest, that would be Jesus, also to have something to offer. Now, if we were on earth, key word there, earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. So what the writer in Hebrews is going to do is he's going to make a contrast between heaven and earth. you gotta, you, you got to bear with me. He's going to make a contrast between heaven and earth. A contrast between our heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, and the earthly high priest, the Levitical priesthood. We're also going to, it's important to note that as we move through this, that there is an earthly tent and a heavenly tent. There's going to be a lesser sacrifice and a greater sacrifice. A, a, a lesser covenant and a greater covenant. Verse 5. They, meaning the earthly priest, their gifts, their sacrifices, and their law that instructs them, even the place that they do their things, they serve a copy. When I say a copy, I mean a pattern. Now, some of you sew or have sewn or you've seen your patterns that your mom or grandma sew from, right? They have a pattern. You want to wear a pattern? Like, here's a pattern of pants. Take them. No, you don't wear the The pattern isn't but anything but to... It, 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 it's just, it's helpful, but it's not what you want. You want the real thing, right? These Levitical priests, the place that they work, the tent, the tabernacle, the temple, the sacrifices they give, the laws that guide them, and the covenant that they are all a copy. They're a pattern. They're good, but they're not, they're not the thing, right? They're not the thing. Look, they serve a copy of... And a shadow of the heavenly things. So if you're outside, we go outside and we walk out and the sun is, you know, it's about high noon, maybe noon 30. And what do we see? We see our shadow on the ground. And we're like, oh, I love." we look at your shadow. Oh, I love your blouse. You can't see someone's blouse based on their shadow. You can see a figure of that person. But you can't see the detail. Right? Like, I don't know. Like, if we could tell who one another is based on our shadow, it would be pretty impressive. But we can't. Because the shadow doesn't give the detail. It's not the real thing. But the things from the Levitical priesthood are copies and shadows. They're patterns. Shadowy suggestions. They're imperfect. They lack the detail. Remember? Verse 11 in chapter 7, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what's there a need to change? 
um, the former commandment was set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Shadows are kind of useless, right? Patterns are pointless unless they refer us back or give us the thing that is real. The things that were spoken of in the Old Testament were imperfect pictures of what was to come. Let me say that again. The things that were spoken of in the Old Testament were just imperfect pictures of what was to come. So let me give you this list again so we can see this. So I'm going to give you the copy and the shadow, the imperfect picture, and then I'm going to tell you what it is pointing to, what it is wanting to reveal, what... What it should be draw it should be drawing out longing for. Let me think about that for a second. If you have been working outside all day and it's super hot, and you hear someone around the corner, somebody shaking a glass of ice water, you can hear it, but you can't see it, and you're not there. And what does that do? It makes you long for the the thing, right? It's not like, oh, I'm satisfied because I can hear the jingling of the ice in the cup. I was like, I want the cup. I want the water. I'm not just satisfied with something that makes me aware of it. Okay? So here, here's, here's the copy in the shadow, and then I'm going to give you the real thing. Of course, priest. The copy in the shadow. Priest. The Levitical priesthood. Aaron. We talked about this last week. What's the real thing? It's Jesus. It's the Son of God, Jesus incarnate. Tabernacle, the temple. What is the real thing? Now, these things we're going to touch on as we walk through 8, 9, and 10. So if, you, if you're not connecting them all, we're going to talk about them. So in chapter 9, we get to understand when we're talking about temple, tabernacle, or temple, tent, tabernacle, or temple, what are we really wanting the throne room of God. The very presence of God. In heaven where he dwells. What about animal sacrifices? They're a copy and shadow of what? The Lamb of God. The Son of God. Who was lifted up on a cross. Making sense? What about the old covenant blessings and curses? Now, that's why I had to think about this one for a minute. You, you obey me, I bless you. You disobey me, I curse you. Well, a copy and shadow of or the reality, the real thing that we would long for as we think about the blessings and curses of the Old Testament is the cross of Christ. Because what happens on the cross of Christ? This is where blessing comes to those who deserve to be cursed. And the cursed came to the one who deserved the blessing. Do you see that? Do you see how God gave Israel the promise of, if you obey, I will bless you. If you disobey, I will curse you. But on the cross of Christ, the inauguration of the new covenant, he says, you who have disobeyed and deserve a curse, I will bless you. Because I'm going to curse the only one who ever deserved the blessing.
So we see, as we look at the copy and the shadow and the reality, that the Old Testament and the New Testament are one. They're not two different stories. They're not God's plan A. And he's like, oh, what am I going to do? Okay, New Testament, plan B. He had one plan all along. One fulfillment. One goal. And it started in Genesis and it ends in Revelation. Do you know that the first covenant wasn't actually with Adam? It was between the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They had an agreement that by the plan of the Father, the death of the Son, and the giving of the Spirit, that they would make a particular people for God, for His glory. An agreement between the three to glorify themselves as one through the planning of the Father, the giving of the Son, the application of the Spirit, so that the triune God would have a people of their own possession. A people that would glorify them for all eternity. The covenant between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit came to us through the new covenant so that we might have a relationship with the living God. Just to save time, go back and look at Luke 24 this week. As Jesus says that everything that Moses wrote and the prophets wrote, they were writing about him, right? Look at that this week as you prepare for next week. So I just want to finish with this. When we think about copy and pattern and shadow, look what, look what he says at, verse, at the end of verse 5. We'll start at 5. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, right? He's going to go build the tabernacle. He was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Where'd the pattern come from? It was, the, it was a pattern of the real thing. So here, here's what I, I would wonder. Now, if I gave my kids... The Mona Lisa. And I said, here's a scratch sheet of paper. Put it over the Mona Lisa and, and trace it. And we'll give it to your mother for her birthday. And we gave it. And, and she'd be like, oh, these are so pretty. That's, that's, is that the Mona Lisa? Yeah, we tried real hard, Mom. Now, that, I mean, that's sweet, right? But it's not the Mona Lisa. They can't give her. They're no da Vinci's, right? Moses and the Israelites who are going to go build this temple after the pattern, they could not build the throne room of God. They were no da Vinci's. But do you think that as they were building the tabernacle that Moses probably stopped and thought, okay, I think God deserves something better than this. This can't be, this can't be it. This can't be where God's supposed to live. 
right? And David actually had that thought. We don't have to wonder if David had that thought. David had built for himself a really nice house. But when he went to go worship God, where did he go? A tent. And he said, God, you know what? I've lived in a house, uh, a really nice house. I think I'm going to build you a really nice house. I'm going to build you a temple. Here's what God told David. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a, a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But wait, didn't he ask Moses to build him a, a tent to dwell in? He says, no, I have not I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you built why have you not built me a house of cedar? He basically says, David, I've been living in a tent for the last I don't know how many hundreds of years. You think I need a house? I didn't ask you for one, but the reason why? This is just temporary. It wasn't meant to last. And also, Paul helps us to understand that God does not live in a house. He does not live in a temple made by hands. Heaven is his abode. The earth is his footstool. He does not need us to build him anything. And so the temple, the, ta the, the tabernacle, think about all the money, all the effort that went into building the temple. And it was only just a pattern. I wish I could explain to you what the temple was like. Because heaven will be infinitely more glorious and valuable than the most majestic temple ever made. Then you think about the sacrifices as well from the Old Testament. The countless years of bloody animal sacrifice. And you think someone might have thought, is this good enough? Is this what God really wants? Is the blood of bulls and goats really washing away my sin? And if you look at Psalm 51 that we read this morning, David got it. He knew that it wasn't enough. And when David knew that he was filthy because of his sin, he said, you got to wash me, God. you got to cleanse me. And I know, he says this, I know that it's not, it's not a sacrifice you want. It's a broken and contrite heart. And we'll see in chapter 9 and in 10 that the, the blood of bulls and goats can't do anything can't do anything and then the the, the, the the covenant condition of blessing and curse right if I told you and this is 
If I told you, you go out and live your life, and if you do good, you'll get blessing. And if you do bad, you'll get curses. Well, if you truly understood how bad you were, you would be hopeless. You would be hopeless. You're like, there is no way. And you know somebody along the way said, God, come on, this isn't right. I can't obey you. I can't do good. I keep disobeying you. Well, David got it right in Psalm 51 as well. He's like, I was created in iniquity. I came out of my mama's womb in sin. I need more than just blessing and curses. I need, here it is, you ready? Mercy. Mercy. David pleads to God to pass over his sin. He did not know how God would do it, but he knew that the only way to be in a right relationship for, with God was that God would pass over his sin. Now, I got tons and tons more to go through. But I just want to finish with Romans 3. There's got to be a better way, right? That's what the that's what the folks in the old covenant had to have been saying. It was like, oh, this temple, this tent, that's not the it's not the place where God truly dwells. These sacrifices can't get it done. I can't keep I can't keep the law. There's got to be something else. Romans 3.21 But now the righteousness of God has been manifested or made known apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith, not obedience, not by your works, not by how good you are, but through faith, trusting in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So David said, you know what? I was an adulterer, a liar, a murderer, and there's no way God can overlook those sins. But I plead for mercy that He can. How did He? Because the sin and judgment of David's murder, lying, and adulterer, adulterer act fell on Christ. It was shown, or I'm sorry, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. David had faith in a new covenant that he knew nothing about. And that's why we can read in verse 6 of chapter 8 in Hebrews. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better 
since it is enacted on better promises. Now that's a loaded sentence. Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. Why? Since it is enacted on better promises. So if you only hear one thing, hear this today. The promises of the old covenant go something like this. The wages of sin is death. The promise of the new covenant goes like this. But the free gift of God, the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Those two things summarize the old and the new covenant. You, in God's providence, have been placed on this side of the new covenant. Yet, many of us still live as if we're in the old. That we are, our only way to please God is obedience. I'm going to tell you, you're heaping up a, a load of curses if that's your outlook on life. Well, if I'm just good enough mom or, mom or dad, if I'm just good enough employee or a good enough boss or a good enough neighbor, if I read my Bible enough, I go to church enough, I do all these things enough, and God's going to He's going to see that my good outweighs the bad. For the wages of sin is death, and that's all you have to offer, and that's all you're heaping up is the curses of death. But the free gift, the free gift comes through faith in Jesus. Trusting, loving, living, longing for Him. You've got to know whether or not you're stuck in the old or if you have found freedom and rest in the new covenant of Christ, which has been brought to you by His blood. By His blood. We'll stop there. And we'll pick up the actual reading of the New Covenant this evening. Please do make an attempt to join us tonight. Uh, we will go through the rest of this chapter tonight. Uh, it is the Lord's Day from now until bedtime. And so I, I encourage you to come back and celebrate the Lord's Day with us this evening at 6 p.m. Uh, with that said, let's sing one more song.